Welcome to Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American. For the seven days starting August 23rd, I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we're going to talk about a proposal for a sweeping new set of requirements for admission to medical school that I think you'll find interesting. The ideas come from Christopher Cowley, who's on faculty at the School of Medicine of the University of East Anglia in England. We'll also quiz you about some recent science in the news. And first up, Editor-in-Chief John Rennie to talk about the annual special single-topic issue of Scientific American Magazine. Hey, John, how you doing? Hi, Steve. Just fine. Thanks. So uh, we're going to get to the single topic issue in a moment. But first, tell everybody about your weekend. You had an interesting weekend. Yes, I did. Uh, I and my uh, my wife, Jennifer, went out to Los Angeles because she had been nominated for an Emmy Award for her work as an editor on the History Channel program, uh, Rome, Engineering and Empire. And I'm delighted to say that she won that Emmy. She won the Emmy. That's right. She's my Emmy Award-winning wife, Jennifer Hahn. That is really cool. Very exciting. Very exciting to be out there for that. And, you know, I think it's it's justifiable to talk about it on the Scientific American podcast because this is a whole separate Emmy Awards from the ones that people associate with the actors and the, and the directors. These are really the technical Emmys. That's uh, – yeah, that's a big part of that. I mean some other sorts of uh, of awards were given as well. But that's right. A lot of it is the uh, paying tribute to the technical side of what makes uh, good television possible. So Jennifer won. Now, how this is what I've always wanted to know because the Emmy – is this heavy metal object with a lot of sharp edges. Yes. So how do you get it through security to take it back to New York from Los Angeles? That's a very important point. And I, I think that's why a lot of people actually just uh, in, in the industry, and by the industry, I mean business. Of course. Uh, of course. Um, uh, they, they live around Los Angeles because, of course, they just couldn't possibly leave. Now, this was a real question. Um, uh, given the tightened uh, airline security these days, uh, we, we decided not to risk uh, trying to bring the Emmy back for fear that we'd have to just you know, leave it in the garbage beside all of the bottles of water and thrown away uh, makeup uh, bags. The Emmy amnesty bin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, no, so we uh, we uh, decided to have it shipped back uh, to us uh, by some friends. Well, congratulations to Jennifer, and uh, let's let's talk about Scientific American single topic issue. The subject is this year. The our theme is uh, energy's future beyond carbon. Energy's future beyond carbon. Now. Uh... Yes. Am I going to really be interested to read eight articles about that? Oh, I think you are, Steve. Um, first of all... Well, wait, wait, I work here. <laughs> well, that is true. And I command you to read it. But I, I think uh, other people would also find this fascinating because the fact is it, it brings together two important subjects, uh, energy, which of course is very much in the news and the problems with uh, shortages of energy, um, but also the issues related to uh, to global warming. I mean, I guess here's, here's the way I, I tend to, to look at the issue. The good news is that uh, when we look right now at the problems with the gasoline shortages and high prices and so forth, uh, sometimes people worry, are we running out of energy? Well, the good news is no, we're not running out of energy at all. We've got tremendous options out there. We have uh, mountains of coal we haven't tapped into. Uh, there's solar energy, there's wind, um, there are various things you can possibly try to do in, the, in uh, nuclear energy, lots of different options. All of that amounts to the idea that there's no shortage of energy uh, that we can get to. Um, a lot of those energy technologies aren't developed. But uh, of course, if you have confidence in uh, how markets work, then over time, then a lot of those kinds of uh, fairly new technologies will uh, come along and they'll all uh, reach a point where they'll be able to provide energy at, uh, at affordable prices. So that's the good news. 
the bad news? Well, the bad news is, is that unfortunately, because of global warming considerations, we're on a timetable. Right now, um, we're pumping out about uh, 7 billion tons of carbon into the air every year. Um, in about 50 years, that'll probably rise, if we don't do anything different, um, to about 14 billion tons. Um, the problem is that by that time, we would then have started to double the uh, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere uh, above what it was at, at pre-industrial levels. And the real concern is that at that point, you start to get not just severe global warming effects, but you start to see kind of an, an irreversible trend. So for example, the uh, Greenland ice cap starts to uh, go away. Um, that's what we have to try to avoid. So in effect, we have to try to, while still getting all of the energy that we need, we also need to start cutting back on our carbon emissions. And we have to start doing that right away. Uh, because uh, every, every year that we delay, uh, we're pumping that much more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and getting closer and closer to those thresholds. So the longer we delay the more drastic those carbon dioxide savings have to be down the line. And that's, uh, that's sort of the problem with the argument. Sometimes you hear people say, well, you know, we, we just have great faith in, in other technologies that are come, come, going to come along. Well, we have great confidence in those technologies too, but it's not realistic to think that they're going to be able to uh, solve the problem if we have to wait too long. One of the things I notice in, in looking at the table of contents is that uh, you, you have all the the wind and solar kind of treatments that you would expect in the Kami Pinko magazine that we are, according to some people. <laughs> but you also have treatments of nuclear energy and coal energy. I mean, you're really looking at everything here. Right. Uh, the, the, the fact is, what, for reasons that are spelled out in the issue, the, it is, again, sort of more good news. It's, it's reasonable to think that we can actually do this, that, uh, that if we use our technological resources wisely, we really can manage to head off the worst kinds of problems that could be associated with uh, with global warming. But it's not going to be a matter of just one magical technology. It's not like we can just build plenty of nuclear reactors and the problem goes away. It's not just a matter of that if we started to use lots of uh, coal gasification techniques, which uh, you're burning coal, that you're pulling the carbon dioxide out before it goes into the atmosphere. Um, you can't just rely on those. What we have to do is stack up lots of different technologies and the contributions they make toward saving us carbon dioxide. And, uh, and that's what will help us get there. It's a war that has to be fought on many fronts. Absolutely. Simultaneously. Yes. Uh, one of the things I, I saw as I leaf through the magazine is just a little bit of a treatment about the fact that for anybody who complains about the cost of some of these things, you also have to always consider the cost of not doing these things. Well, that's right. Um, it's very easy to, to point at the costs that would be associated with shifting over to a very different energy infrastructure. But uh, one, you've got the costs that would be associated with uh, the global warming consequences of flooding and so forth and changes in, in growing seasons and, and disease. And disease. Um, all of these kinds of things are very, very disruptive. Uh, you know, another point is that even if you put aside those kinds of consequences, that the fact is that you're always investing in your energy infrastructure anyway. So, for example, there are very expensive things you could do uh, that would be involved in trying to um, change how electricity is distributed across the country the, to help along a you know a hydrogen-based economy. Those would be very expensive changes to make. But the fact is, you're also still putting in uh, about two thirds that same amount just to uh, keep up the uh, the infrastructure that we have now. So uh, these costs really always have to be put in the right context. 
Good stuff, John. That's the uh, September issue of Scientific American is the single topic issue. Energy's future beyond carbon. Thanks, John. Hey, give yourself a bell there. Ah, oh, that is nice. You can check out the single topic issue of Scientific American at our website, www.siam.com. Our 2002 single topic issue on time won the National Magazine Award that year. You can access that entire issue at our digital archive, www.siamdigital.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, periodic awakenings during hibernation allow animals to raise dangerously low body temperatures. Story two, there are more species of venomous fish than of venomous snakes. Story three, the winner of a Fields Medal for Mathematics inexplicably stayed home in Russia rather than accept the award. And story four, man stuck in vat of chocolate saved by cocoa butter. We'll be back with the answer, but first, some well-known writers have been doctors. Somerset Maugham and Anton Chekhov come to mind. But Christopher Cowley of the School of Medicine at the University of East Anglia thinks that all new medical students should at least have read some literature, if not actually written it. I called him at his home in England. Dr. Cowley, great to talk to you today. Thank you. Uh, You have this piece in the recent issue of Journal of Medical Ethics, and it's called Five Proposals for a Medical School Admission Policy. Now, I want to make it clear, first of all, that this is really directed at a British audience in terms of the medical education there, but I think some of it is probably applicable to the situation in the U.S. and and perhaps around the rest of the world as well. Um, One quick thing, let's get this out of the way right away. Apparently, and I I didn't know about this, the age of, of your medical students in England is different from that in the United States, is that right? Yes, that's true. Most uh, that's not actually a British phenomenon, but uh, most of Europe actually lets uh, students begin at the age of eighteen. Well, let's talk about some of the proposals in your in your article. The first proposal is that all medical students should have a very high uh, level of education in a humanities. We're very science-heavy in our medical education and medical and pre-medical education here, but you want them to have a, a good background in the liberal arts or humanities. That's right. In the British system, uh, we have these things called A-levels, and at the age of 16, you specialize in three subjects. Uh, this is, again, unlike America. So most people who want to become doctors are told by their guidance counselors at age 16 to choose three sciences, that this maximizes your chances. And most medical schools in Britain will insist at least on biology and chemistry as two of those A-levels. Now, my suggestion is that the third A-level, i.e. a minimum of one A-level, should be a humanity or a social science. And I'm interpreting that very broadly to include English literature, drama, history, religious studies, politics, anything that works with texts and with people. And... um, the the point is that this will make them better rounded going into medical school. And and why this may seem like a silly question, but why do we need better rounded doctors? Why shouldn't they just be experts in the science? Well, it depends. The big question here is what is a good doctor? And uh, that's a larger debate. Uh, this is only a small part of it. My belief is that uh, being a good doctor is certainly a science, and I'm certainly not proposing that the science be reduced in content at all. Uh, My proposals are about a supplement and not a replacement. Uh, The science is very important, but it's also a human relationship. It's also a relationship with 
uh, patients who are weak and vulnerable, and it is very important for the doctor to understand, to empathize, to imagine what it's like to be in a patient's shoes. Now, your, your second proposal, you want extra points, even more credit, if that uh, excellent background is in English literature specifically. It is English literature that forces the student to take the individual characters seriously as individuals. And this allows them to make sense of patients as individuals. Now, of course, none of this is any guarantee. I'm suggesting that it'll improve the chances somewhat that a doctor will be able to empathize with a patient, will be able to imagine how the world looks from the patient's point of view. And this also has a repercussion in ethics. Now, there's been a lot of talk about ethics, and my own job is to be the lecturer in ethics in our medical school. Um, and a lot of medical schools have come a long way in teaching ethics. Now, I think that they don't, that the students with a scientific background don't, are not sufficiently primed to get as much out of the education in ethics and in the other social sciences without the social science background. And they're not as primed to get as much out of ethics without a literary background. Because ethics ultimately is about one individual and another individual uh, trying to sort out a difficult situation. And that means understanding different points of view. Point number three in your list of proposals is a minimum age of 23. And you point out that in, in the U.S. that's... Uh, sort of a de facto situation because the typical U.S. medical student has already completed an undergraduate degree. Yes. Uh, but uh, in England, it would be different, and, and you would like uh, just the, the kids to have been seasoned a little bit more, to have aged a little bit more prior to their entrance into medical school. I would make an age requirement such that it would force even the American graduate to work for one or two years after graduation so that they see something of the real world. It's not only about being seasoned, it's also about being able to understand what ordinary jobs are like, what it's like to work in an office in a boring job for a weekly or a monthly pay packet, work with people you don't like, work for a boss you don't like. And therefore, it comes back to understanding the patients who are in these sorts of drudgery and these sorts of boring jobs. Mm -hmm. And and that gets us right to proposal number four, which is you you would like a full year's experience in a healthcare or charitable organization. Yes, I think this is actually alongside the age criteria. Maybe this one's the most important. Um, it's it's the thought of giving medicine a go first. Now you can't be a surgeon for a year, obviously, but you can work with vulnerable people. And this means working for a full year, full time, so 40 hours a week, uh, probably for a pittance, uh, if not in, a, in the voluntary sector for nothing. Um, and just realizing that it's not as glamorous as it might seem on TV. Let's also talk about your last proposal, which is uh, you'd like to change the structure of the medical school interview. Well, there were, there were two aspects to my proposal. One is a conversation about literature. The other is a conversation about health politics. We publicize in advance a list of possible books to talk about and health political issues to talk about. best example of a book is The uh, Death of Ivan, Il Ivan Illich by Leo Tolstoy. Um, this is the story of the very slow death of the narrator. The point is, in the, in the interview, uh, both the interviewer and the interviewee would have read the same book. The discussion would then go off in any number of directions. 
And it's about whether the applicant can understand the issues, can understand the narrator. Mm -hmm. um, the health politics, this would be a number of issues uh, in politics because I don't think doctors are aware enough of politics. And in this country, healthcare is becoming more and more political. And decisions are being made by politicians and managers, and doctors themselves are complaining about these decisions, but are themselves not sufficiently interested or engaged, and I don't think they can afford to be disinterested, uh, uninterested anymore. Uh, you uh, published this article at the end of July. What kind of response have you been getting? Um, the response has been mixed, as I anticipated. There is a large group of doctors and medical students who just uh, laugh it off. It's a non-medic who doesn't understand. And um, yes, yes, yes. Uh, wouldn't it be great if all doctors could quote Shakespeare, but wouldn't it be a little better if they actually knew how to use a scalpel? Um, some doctors have been sympathetic to some of the ideas. Um, one common response is to say that the that healthcare is a very broad church, that there's lots of room for lots of different types of people. Is it, isn't it in a way a, a, a false choice? Can't we have physicians who can use a scalpel and quote Shakespeare? Yes, I am optimistic to think that both are possible. Uh, but it also comes down to this basic question. What is a doctor? What is the job of a doctor? Uh, what is a good doctor? And I cannot help but see medicine as primarily a people-oriented profession rather than a science. It's, it's, it has scientific tools of great sophistication, but it's not primarily a science. Dr. Cowley, very interesting. Thank you so much for talking to us. My pleasure. You can read Christopher Cowley's entire Journal of Medical Ethics article about new admission standards for medical students at tinyurl.com slash NLKNS. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, hibernating animals periodically awaken to raise their body temperatures. Story two, venomous fish species outnumber venomous snake species. Story three, Fields Medal winner passes on the award. And story four, man stuck in chocolate saved by cocoa butter. Time's up. Story four is true. In last week's most delicious near tragedy, a worker in a Kenosha, Wisconsin chocolate factory was stuck in a 110-degree vat of dark chocolate so viscous that only mixing it with cocoa butter allowed the worker to finally be pulled free after more than two hours. No word on if he yelled fire because nobody would have come if he yelled chocolate. It's an old joke. Story two is true. Researchers at the American Museum of Natural History estimate some 1,200 species of venomous fish based on DNA and anatomic studies. Their paper in the Journal of Heredity notes that the fish thus make up the bulk of the 2,000 species of venomous vertebrates. About 500 snake species are poisonous. And story three is true. Gregory Perlman won a Fields Medal, often called the Nobel Prize of Math, for his solution to the Poincaré conjecture, which deals with properties of spheres, but he never showed up at the ceremony in Spain. He may be ticked off at the rest of the math community for some reason, or as one colleague put it, his decision may not have any logic behind it at all, ironically. You can read more on our website, Siam.com, in the article called Reclusive Genius Shuns World's Top Maths Prize. All of which means that story one about hibernating animals waking up to raise their body temperatures is totally bogus. Because new research just reported at the Ecological Society of America meeting indicates that some hibernating animals wake up as a defense against bacterial infections. Antibody production is stopped during hibernation and the regular wake-up calls may be to kickstart the immune system. 
that's it for this edition of the Scientific American Podcast. Our email address is podcast at siam.com. And also remember Science News, updated daily on the Scientific American website, www.siam.com. And don't forget the September special issue, the single topic issue of Scientific American Magazine, Energy's Future Beyond Carbon. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 